Blog Talk Radio. Hi, this is Port of Harlem Talk Radio, and I'm your host for this show and also publisher of Port of Harlem Magazine at portofharlem.net. If you are listening via the Internet, you can type your questions in the comment box. You can also call and listen by dialing on your phone, 516-531-9540. And if you want to ask a question after you are connected, press 1, and please be in a quiet place. You can also visit portofharlem.net and click Port of Harlem Talk Radio from the menu to hear this and past episodes. We're also available on about seven podcast platforms. And lastly, We Talk Productions sponsors Port of Harlem Talk Radio. Our our first guest is Tony Broder, who through the ASA Restoration Project, and the web address is IKG, Cultural Resource center.com that he started in 2008 has raised funds for the excavation and restoration of two 25th dynasty tombs that Dr. Elena Pishkava, and he had to correct me, maybe you laid on that one, discovered in Luxury, Egypt in 2006. Both Dr. Pishkaga and Broder disagreed, dis- dis- disagreed with, with the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, raised funds of the restoration of the 20th dynasty tomb that he and the doctor discovered in, or the doctor discovered in Luxury in 2006, both Dr. Pishkava and Broder disagree with traditional Egyptologists that claim that the 25th dynasty was the only time that uh, black kings ruled Egypt. Nevertheless, in an earlier Port of Harlem interview, Broder made clear, quote, our mission is to eventually excavate all three tombs, catalog our findings, and clean, conserve, and restore the tombs to their original condition. Welcome, Tony. Good evening, Wayne. How are you doing, brother? Uh, pretty good. Long time, no talk. But, you know, I follow your email, so I feel like I know what you're doing. But we want to share that with all our <laughs> listeners. <laughs> so for let's sure, start. for sure. Well, I appreciate that. It keeps me up to date. So let's mm-hmm. start how this project began um, in Egypt. And uh, and what has been your greatest accomplishments to date? Well, um, point of fact, the, the project actually began before before it began, in that um, the impetus for the creation of this project occurred with the uh, the death of my dear friend and colleague Asa Hilliard, who passed in Egypt on the 13th of August in 2007. Uh, it was a sudden. It was a sudden uh, illness and passing. Um, Asa had come to Egypt for a conference, and he did the opening keynote. And he was kind of ill. And you know, when when I last saw him, um, I was told that he was going to do okay. That he was dehydrated. And um, three days later, <clears throat> I find out that he died. So his sudden passing came as a shock to, to myself and everyone who knew him and loved him. And as I was grieving his absence, you know, I, I was reminded of uh, the African proverb that in order for the the ancestors to continue to live, uh, we must speak their names or we must uh, make opportunities available so that others can speak their names by naming buildings or streets or projects after that person. So uh, the following year, in July of 2008, I was in Egypt, and an Egyptian friend of mine introduced me to a woman who had just begun excavations in Egypt, excavations on um, a couple of 25th Dynasty tombs, and he thought that I would be interested in what she was doing. So uh, he, my, my, my dear friend, who, who's now an ancestor as well, Abunaga introduced me to Dr. Lena Pishtakova, who is a Russian-born, American-trained Egyptologist, one of the foremost authorities in the art and history of the 25th Dynasty. And she had been excavating uh, three tombs in, in, on the west bank of, of Luxor, Egypt, near the Valley of the Kings. And, and so I was so impressed with what she had done with limited funding, as a matter of fact, with her own funds. She she wound up using her own money and her 401k and credit cards to pay the 
$40,000 a year that it was costing her at that time to work uh, four months during the summer to hire workers for this job. So she was about to shut it down because she had run out of money. And um, I, because of my relationship with Dr. Hilliard and, and several other scholars, I understood the value of the 25th Dynasty. And so I, I made a commitment to Alina that I would help to raise funds so this work could continue. And, uh, and so it was in September of 2008 that I created the ASA Restoration Project, uh, named in honor of ASA Hilliard. And, and so we began the process of we, we're a nonprofit organization, a 501c3. And so the goal was to uh, go out to our community and let them know of this opportunity that's available to us to excavate and restore uh, three 2,700-year-old Kushite tombs. And so the Acer Restoration Project was born on uh, September the 21st in 2008. We are 12 and a half years into this work, and um, I can say that our, our budget has increased from $40,000 a year to the last three years, uh, our budget has exceeded $100,000. Uh, okay, before we, go a bit for, before we go a little bit further into the history of it, let's fast forward and then come back and just tell us what your mm-hmm. greatest accomplishments have, what our greatest, what your sure. greatest accomplishments have been to date. Right, and, and, and I'm getting to that. So one of the reasons why our last three seasons have cost us so much, so much more than previously is because we have discovered so much more. So over the last three years, we have... Um, uh, we've had three annual uh, exhibitions, exhibitions at the Luxor Museum where we have put on display artifacts that we found. So in uh, 20, 2019, uh, we did an exhibition of over 104 artifacts that we found from a set of canopic jars that are used to uh, contain the, the viscera of the deceased. We found those in 2016. Uh, we found um, last year was probably our best year to date in terms of discoveries. When we first began this project, in, in, when Alina first began in 2006, I joined in 2008, we had three tombs that we were working on excavating and restoring. Last season, brother, we found four new tombs. So we now have a total of eight tombs <laughs> that we are excavating and restoring at the site, uh, but that is not the best thing that happened to us last year in 2020. Our greatest discovery was we found on the floor of, a, of one of the tombs that we were excavating, we found a pyramidion. Now, a pyramidion is a capstone to a pyramid, and what this finding of this pyramidion confirmed for us what we had already suspected, that these tombs were tombs of Kushite noblemen of the 25th dynasty, and that in, in Kush, you have Kushes now in modern-day Sudan. You have more pyramids in Kush than you have in Egypt. There's over 400 pyramids in Kush. There's only uh, like 118 in Egypt. But the Kushite pyramids are very steep, uh, and they're smaller than the Egyptian pyramids. And so we suspected that since these three major tombs um, in South Assasif where we were excavating were the first Kushite tombs built in Kemet, that these Kushite noblemen probably had pyramids built over their tombs. Now, the tombs have been destroyed by the Greeks and the Romans and the Arabs, uh, so there was not a lot there um, that has been left behind. Most of the artifacts and, and the treasures have been have been robbed eons ago, and they're probably in private collections of museums uh, scattered around the world. But <clears throat> we were able to find this pyramidion, which leads us to the suspicion that. Uh, well, actually, let me let me back up. I'm getting a little a little ahead of myself. This pyramidion is the first. Go ahead. Kushite Pyramidion ever found in Egypt. And so in December, December 12th of last year, that was our latest exhibition in the Luxor Museum where I designed a, a, a special uh, plexiglass, clear plexiglass pyramid, uh, and then we placed a Pyramidion on top of that. 
So we had this incredible um, grand opening in the Luxor Museum. And, and so we have proven the value of our work, and we also have been able to uncover uh, a wealth of information about the 25th Dynasty, and we're now in the process of writing publications and correcting the misinterpretations of uh, Africans in the 25th dynasty and connecting them with other Africans of the earlier dynasties who had preceded them. Gotcha. And I got that from initial conversation, but let me ask you a couple few, few questions. You raised the Pyramidion. Pronounce the word again for Pyr- me. Tell me what that is. Yeah, Pyramidion. Pyramidion. Mm-hmm. So Pyramidion is the capstone uh, that goes on top of a pyramid, right? Or say, if you can visualize the Washington Monument. Right, so where those four slopes come together, uh, right. that that piece is a pyramidion on top of the of the obelisk. Gotcha. And so then you also mentioned, in other words, yeah, and you mentioned visceral. I think that's the inside of the body. Yes, it's uh, well specifically it's the stomach, the uh, portion of the intestines, uh, the liver. And uh, I'm blanking on what the, the fourth object is, but these but were. But the uh, you, well, you found them. But you found these in these jars. You say. Yeah, in the canopic jars, and the, the canopic jars, uh, these canopic jars were made out of alabaster, which is a very hard stone, and they were dedicated to Amenertis, the lady of the house. Now, this is a significant find because Amenertis was the title of um, the daughter of, of two Kushite kings, uh, two different Kushite kings. We had Amenertis I and Amenertis II, so we're not quite sure which one this is. But she is important because the Kushite princesses held a very special position in Egypt. They were known as the God's wife of our men. It was a priestesshood that was established for these royal women who were, um, I guess another way you, you, could, you could state their position, they were the, the wives of God. And their job was to maintain all of the key rituals in um, the city of Luxor, as it's known today, but in ancient times it was called Waset. And Waset was, for 2,000 years, Waset was the cultural, political, and spiritual capital of Kemet, which is the ancient name for modern Egypt. It was a cultural, political, and spiritual capital of the world for 2,000 years. And for approximately 100 years during the time frame of the 25th dynasty, these African sisters held this prestigious position as the God's wife of our men, and we found the canopic jars of one of these sisters, Amenertis, in, uh, in one of the uh, three tombs that we've been excavating. Yeah, and I also find it exciting that you that, that that they took. I guess when they died, they took the intestines out and put them in a special place. And then, yeah, bottle. well, you know, why, why they, was they, why was why did they do that, or do you know why they did it, and how did they preserve well, it? Uh, they 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 took everything out of the body. Uh, they took out the brain. They took out the intestines, the stomach. The only part of the body which they left inside the body was the heart. And the reason for that is that in ancient times, in Kemet and Cush, uh, Africans in the Nile Valley considered the heart the seat of the soul. And on the day of judgment, uh, when your, your, your soul literally goes into the hall of judgment and your heart metaphorically has to be weighed opposite uh, the feather of my heart on the scale of my where the soul has to declare their innocence, by, decide, by reciting the 42 declarations of innocence or the 42 admonitions of Ma'at. And so these declarations of innocence are the source material for, for the Ten Commandments. So there were 42 initially. Hmm? Right. That makes sense because you're saying you're weighing, I remember the weighing of the heart against the feather. Exactly. Exactly. And so that's so why you leave the, so that's heart why the heart in the body. And so that's why the heart becomes so important. That's why it stays in the body. Right. And the Makes heart sense. was the seat of the soul. And, mm-hmm. and the idea was that the soul or the ba uh, expresses itself at this particular journey into 
uh, this particular portion of your journey into the afterworld. So your heart speaks for you. Your soul speaks for you and declares that you have not uh, committed robbery. You have not committed adultery. You have not defrauded offerings. You have not done these 43, 42 things which were seen as an insult to Ma'at, to the ancestors, and to the Creator. And if you have been truthful to these declarations, then you will be found Ma'at Keru, which means true of voice. So your heart did not betray you. So that's the reason why the heart was left in the body uh, at the time of burial. Okay, before we get too much further to your, back to your accomplishments, I want to get uh, clear, too, that you made this connection between um, the, uh, the original or the smaller pyramids, the early pyramids and the smaller ones being in Kush, which is further south of Egypt in modern-day Sudan. And so you're making the connection between, uh, I believe, between the Kushites being further south into Africa and moving further north later into Egypt, further mm-hmm. proving that they were from the southern part of the continent. Is that the whole point? Yeah, well, well uh, the, the, the major point is that the Nile River flows from south to north. The Nile River is the longest river in the world and, and one of the only major river in the world which flows from south to north. So the south is the higher elevation. The south was the homeland of the people who lived along the Nile Valley, all of the cultures that lived along the Nile Valley. So we know, based on the latest archaeological evidence, that hieroglyphics, the kingship patterns, that some of the most important personalities in the history of Kemet or ancient Egypt, they originated up south. They originated in Kush and in Ethiopia. So the Kushites literally saw themselves as as the ancestors of the people of Kemet or Egypt. So when Egypt fell on hard times, it was the king of Kush who said, we must go in, we must go down, um, <clears throat> down north and and restore the land of our ancestors by driving out the foreigners, which is exactly what they did, and established the 25th dynasty. Okay, great. So um, moving on, <laughs> today's intro, and I'm just saying because I don't want to get too deep into the history. I just love to love, because we can do that forever, but I just love people mm-hmm. to know your accomplishments. And one of the accomplishments that I've learned today is that you've gone from starting from three tombs to 18 tombs, and no, I do remember eight, six. Eight tombs. Eight tombs. Eight tombs. Yeah. Eight tombs. Uh, don't scare I, me, brother. Eighteen is, is, is way too many. <laughs> but I do remember you sending out the email uh, about the exhibit in Egypt, and I was I did watch, if not all of it, most of it. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. But but in today's in, but in today's intro, I spoke of your raising funds. But in 2011, you explained, "quote We work in 100 to 100 degree temperatures." and in pits of 20 feet below the surface. Tell me, how did you prepare yourself for this type of work? <laughs> well, it's really a labor of love, man. Uh, you know, I've, I've been traveling to Egypt for 40 years, and I'm used to the heat. I love the heat. It doesn't bother me. Uh, the main thing that you have to do is, is make sure you stay hydrated. So one of the benefits of, of working in the tombs um, the the other the two tombs that we had they were still underground they were still intact so when you go into those tombs uh, it's about 20 degrees cooler uh, the major tomb that we have been working on the tomb of Karakamen his ceiling collapsed in around 1994 so that was the oven that we were doing where we were doing most of our work but uh, four years ago we actually put a temporary roof over the tomb of Karakamun. So now that tomb is now cool in the summer. So we've created a, a better working conditions for our conservators who have been able to, within the last two years, man, within the last two years, we've made more progress in, in the restore, restoration of Karakamun's tomb within the last two years than we have within the last decade. Because um, in 2019, uh, we had extra cash. We had raised some extra money. So we spent um, $15,000 on new tools. So now okay. our workers have individual tools where they can they can get so much more work done. 
Isn't that important? Tools and technology. Absolutely. And these guys, man, they could do some incredible things with uh, with little to no tools. So you can just imagine what they can do when they have the proper proper tools. So if people want to donate today, they can go online, of course, to IKG Cultural Resource Center dot com. So Tony, what does IKG stand for and mean? Well, IKG is an organization that I founded uh, 39 years ago. She's a date uh, Well, no, please, I don't mind dating myself, brother. I've been at this for a long time. <laughs> and I, I, am preparing, I am preparing my replacements as we speak, all right? We're going to talk so about I'm not that. So I'm not going to be like most black organizations uh, in that when, when the leadership dies, the organization dies. I'm preparing my replacements now. So all the work that I've created can continue uh, while I'm doing other things and can also continue when I'm no longer here. So, okay, let me, um, we, we, get that, we get that in a second, but let's get back to what does IKG stand for. Okay, IKG, um, IKG. IKG stands for Information, Knowledge, and Growth. The idea being if you have correct information, that then helps you develop a knowledge base, and with the application of that knowledge, you can experience growth, profound growth and development, IKG. Okay, and we already know that ASA stands for, it's the first name of uh, um, Asa Hill, Hillier. Uh, it, it, it does, but it's also an acronym. Uh, okay. ASA stands for the ACG Hilliard South Ossesif, uh Restoration Project. South Ossesif is the name of the area on the west bank of Luxor where we're working. The mountain range is called the Ossesif Mountains. So we're in South Ossesif. The Temple of Hatchet and the Valley of the Kings is in North Ossesif. Gotcha. But if people forget uh, how to get to his webpage, of course, you can always email us, call us, and we will send you an email or tell you what the web address is. If you forget to even Google his name, Tony Browder, or forget to Google, um, I forget Just what else you IKG. Yeah, that's IKG come on the Ace Restoration Project. They'll yeah. find us online easily. Mm-hmm. So you got ahead of me, though, again. But uh, and Sorry. I almost felt like I almost felt like I almost felt like I sent you these questions, which I did not. But uh, yeah, I know your daughter Alanis is hanging with her dad, and mm-hmm. I guess she's one of your she's one of the people you're preparing. And um, I think she's even giving your Egypt on the Potomac tour. Is that correct? No, she hasn't. Uh, th- that was one thing that she's been kind of slow to do. But I've got a team of um, I've got a team of twelve people that I've trained. Uh, that now do the field trip. I have I have officially retired from doing field trips. As of April the 17th, uh, 2021, I have officially <laughs> retired from doing the field trips, and my team is now taking over uh, that business. That field trip, Egypt Brother on the Potomac Brother, is 34 years old, and I think I deserve wow. a break after 34 years. <laughs> yeah, if you live in Metro D.C. or you visit Metro D.C., Believe me, that's the tool you should be on and not on those little buses. And I, and you can find out about those tours too at the at the at, at his website too. And I think the mm-hmm. tours may be a half a day long. Well, they're three hours. They're three hours. Three hours. And yeah. uh, you know, fortunately, uh we were we curtailed the, the field trips last season because of COVID, because we hire a bus passenger bus and we drive around to these various locations where we show you the Egyptian influences on the layout design and development of Washington DC so because we didn't do the field trips last year uh, I created a modified field trip a modified walking field trip that focuses on the major um, component of the field trip which is the 16th Street corridor where we have Meridian Hill Park and the two Masonic temples so we we found a way to incorporate all the information, the three-hour or the three-hour field trip within this walking field trip. So uh, we're looking at offering that uh, beginning in June uh, until COVID, the COVID issue has resided, and we can begin to start doing the the regular Egypt on the Potomac field trips with buses again. Well, I'm a big fan of going to the Library of Congress, and I just remember standing in front of the Library of Congress. And you're explaining what those uh, symbols are around the door. And I was thinking, all these years I walked through the door, I have no clue. <laughs> well, well where and, don't and feel bad. I got the explanation. It makes your whole life so different. <laughs> well, 
that's that's the beauty that's the beauty of discovering um your history because as a person of African ancestry living in Washington DC I've lived here for 50 years now uh DC was created modeled after ancient Kemet and and the history the symbolism uh the mythology is literally embedded in the architectural landscape of what is now the capital of the wealthiest and most powerful nation in human history. And we provide all of the evidence to show that Egypt has been rebuilt here on the Potomac. It's right here if you know what to look for. If you know what to look for. That's the big catch right there. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you help and you help me know what to look for. And now that I see it, it makes my life different. In fact, there was a guy who I used to work at the Census Bureau. The guy who connected was walking down the hall, and uh, it was so funny. I don't forget because he had told me he had gone to Egypt. I said, Oh yeah, I had gone too. But I had gone with some. I had gone with Doctor Ben, and so then we were talking, and he said, That's why none of this building matters to me anymore because he had gone he had gone to Egypt with you. <laughs> it come oh, back. it's much than Randy, right? Randy Gardner? Randy. Randy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he made it so clear. Oh, Nothing yeah. is matter to this building. <laughs> <laughs> Once you know the truth, man, the truth will set you free. Yeah. It was It was, It was. was just, it was a, a very good statement I'll never forget. Mm-hmm. But given okay. that offspring, but given that offspring often don't find interest in their family business, and many legacy organizations that you mentioned earlier, like I won't even mention now, struggle to attract younger people. What is your thought or thoughts on advice on attracting younger people to projects like such as yours? Well, you know, my my project, what what I do is not work. is 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 transformative. So as I said, we've got uh, we've trained twelve people since two thousand and five. We've trained 12 people to do the field trip, and all I think the oldest person is probably 43, 44. Right, so I'm I'm about training my replacements. Uh, my daughter is my daughter be she's 38 now, so she's been traveling to Egypt with me since she's seven. I'm preparing her to take over my field trips. She's been coming to the missions um, for the past 11 years now, and so she can take over that project when I'm ready to step back. And I'm looking at stepping back in 2025. That's when we plan to have our grand opening of the tombs that we've restored in South Ossetia. So you'll be hearing more about that event uh, as well, Wayne. And what year that being? Because maybe I need to get there. What year? 2025, in the fall of, of 2025. Oh, so I got four years. Okay. Yeah, you Absolutely. have to let me know because maybe I need to make a trip back to Egypt. If I can just not go to the Gambia, but I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> but before you, you go, do, man. Yeah, hey, I love the. I, well, you know, I like being on Africa's smiling coast. But before you go, what's what's next? How much money do you need to raise? When do you plan to return to Egypt, et cetera? Sure. Well, uh, we're in a constant fundraising mode because, in addition to uh, doing the work. Uh, at the site every year, we have we employ over 125 people, so most of the money goes towards salaries. Uh, but in addition to doing that, we plan to develop a uh, business center. Uh, I may, in fact, be uh, purchasing a building in Egypt that will serve as our visitor center uh, for our grand opening in 2025. Uh, we also have a brand new project that I'm excited about. It's the John Henry Clark Enhanced History Project, where we will showcase on the second floor of the Thurgood Marshall Center in Washington D.C., where our offices are, we're going to we're going to put up displays that will share the missing information from the National Museum of African American History and Culture. So we'll have a publication associated with that, and we're, we're developing a, a uh, curriculum for that program. We have um, uh, an, another program that that is targeted towards high school youth, a cultural imperative program based on high school students reading my first book from the Browder file and writing essays. So my daughter is now the national director of that project, and we're in, uh, we're in 12 cities right now with that program. So I'm about um, educating, transforming the lives of youth so that as they become adults, they will have a world in which they can negotiate and they will have business enterprises where they can now be their own bosses as opposed to working for someone else. 
Well, that you have been doing, and I'm glad to hear that you're preparing for others to continue. I know you've been influential and have changed my life and my and how I see things. And like I say, my buddy uh, at work, he said he said the best. He said none of this matters. <laughs> <laughs> well, we so we establish new priorities, right? We establish <laughs> new priorities. I guess, but like I say, we did. Yeah, we established the priorities. I can accept that. But again, and, and, our, and I, our greatest priorities should be ourselves, knowing ourselves, and then acting on that knowledge for the benefit of the generations who will come behind us. Okay, so Tony, before we go again, it's IKG Culture Resource, no S, Center dot com, and there's multiple ways that you can Google and find Tony Broad. I think part of you said you can do IKG to come straight up. Tony Broder should come. His website should come straight up, mm-hmm. and there you can Ace find the out about project. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one I use too. And Ace you the can uh, project and Egypt on the Potomac. Egypt, yeah, which I definitely would want anyone to do that ever comes here to DC, Metro DC is just worth it. Okay, Tony, so great. Looking forward to hearing from you again. Well, thank you for this opportunity, uh, Wayne, and you stay safe, and I look forward to, to seeing you at one of our events uh, very soon. And you definitely will, and hopefully in Egypt in 2025. Sounds good, man. Sounds All right, good. take care. Take care. Thank All you right, for you this too. opportunity. Mm-hmm. Take care. You're welcome. Okay, coming up next, we're going to take a small break, and we'll be back in one second. And coming up next is, uh, again, to Port of Harlem Talk Radio, is our friend Nathan Richardson. Richardson, Nathan, I, I'm sorry. Nathan, are you there? Okay, Nathan should be here in a second. And did I cut him off by mistake? I hope I didn't. Let's see. So, Nathan, are you there? Uh, yes, I Nathan, am. How are you doing this evening? Pretty good. I hope everything's going well. Oh yeah, I can hear you well now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I'm our having, next guest... having a good day. Having a good day. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. So our next guest, of course, is poet, author, and Frederick Douglass historian Nathan Richardson, who spends a great deal of time researching the life and times of Frederick Douglass. And this year, I'm going, this time I'm going to mention he was born between 18, 18, 18 he, he lived between eighteen eighteen and eighteen ninety five, meaning that you know he lived a good part during the Reconstruction one era. And as a Douglas historian, we talk with Richardson about his thoughts on the recently passed Georgia and Kentucky voting laws and their place in history. We also contrast those laws with proposed laws in the Gambia. Back in the States, we also look at Marjorie Green Taylor's America's First Caucus with a historical historical lens, too. So, Nathan, uh, what I want to do is just talk about some of the facts and just get your thoughts on them. And especially your thoughts from a historical perspective as a person who spends so much time reading about Douglas and therefore looking at his life during Reconstruction. Does that sound fair? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, you had reached out to me a couple of weeks ago about this topic, uh, and then uh, I just I had already been looking at uh, all of this uh, in preparing for Juneteenth. I've got you know Juneteenth is coming. And Juneteenth uh, and Reconstruction are intertwined. It's really like a thread. I mean, if you if you were to to weave uh, three strands of of yarn together, you'd you'd have uh, Juneteenth, you'd have Reconstruction, and you'd have uh, political struggle, all in in one thread uh, woven together throughout history. Uh, and so, even when we're talking about uh, the recent uh, push in Washington, D.C. Uh, to uh, form statehood, uh, that has a direct correlation. As a matter of fact, I was reading uh, in one newspaper, I think it was uh, the, the Hill newspaper, that they were saying, well, Democrats are facing something they never faced before with seeking uh, statehood of Washington, D.C. Well, that's, that's actually not correct at all. Uh, we have certainly... Uh, there's been other states, uh, other territories that we've tried to bring into the union, and they face a similar opposition by those people 
who didn't want uh, a shift in political power. And exactly. President Douglas was involved in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and 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 before I even talked about my personal experience with that, let's move on to the fact that Republicans in 43 states have introduced 253 voter suppression bill, bills since Donald Trump's false claim that fraud led to his 2020 election defeat. When you think about that, how do you process that historically? Well, I process it from the standpoint of Reconstruction, uh, that when Andrew Johnson, after the assassination of, of Abraham Lincoln, uh, established uh, uh, Reconstruction, uh, the key uh, the key factors uh, which set up uh, the real shift in political power was the the passing of the Thirteenth Amendment, especially the Fourteenth Amendment, uh, which gave us equal protection under the law, and then of course the Fifteenth Amendment when that was ratified which gave the black man the right to vote. And so those, those, those three amendments to the Constitution uh, in combination uh, gave, um, gave tremendous political power uh, to African-Americans, people of color. And so there was a, certainly a, a rebellion or a, or a uh, political grab to get that power back or to suppress those voting rights. And so we see that uh, what we see in the modern era is more, uh, and I can use a modern term, really these, these laws that they're passing are really kind of microaggression, if you want to use a, a, a modern term for that. But in the, in the 17th, uh, in the uh, you know, 1800s, 1865, 69, uh, it was not microaggression aggression at all. It was outright um, <laughs> massacres in Memphis. Uh-huh. It, it was uh, it was ma- massacres in Memphis, uh, in Colfax, Louisiana. As a matter yeah, of fact, yeah, I've never heard that uh, before. Yeah, so there was a, there okay. was a, this uh, particular um, massacre in in Louisiana was based on the fact that uh, a majority uh, black um, uh, elected officials won a particular county in Colfax. And so uh, the Confederates uh, surrounded uh, the city hall and the blacks, which many of them at that time were uh, ex-Union soldiers. They they had the right to bear arms, just like like the Confederates did. And so those uh, elected officials... Uh, barricaded themselves in in the, uh, in the in the house in the in the state house, and they were surrounded by Confederates who assaulted them, killed more than a dozen African Americans. I think there were about three or four uh, white men that were killed in that in that massacre. Well, this in the prosecution of those who assaulted uh, these elected officials uh, ended up going all the way to to the Supreme Court. Uh, in a case uh, which is called, um, uh, let's see, um, went all the way to the Supreme Court, and they won based on the fact uh, it's called the Crookshaw versus the United States of America. And so this Crookshaw ruling by the uh, by the Supreme Court uh, basically shifted the responsibility that was guaranteed of equal protection under the law in the 14th Amendment, and they shirked that responsibility by saying that this particular situation was not a government uh, sanction or a government uh, entity that caused this uh, massacre. And so they had no ruling and could therefore not prosecute these people who had, who had killed elected officials. Uh, and, so, and so there were all sorts of... Uh, so to be clear, uh, to be clear, so yes. to be clear, the Supreme Court said that the white people could not be prosecuted for attacking the black elected officials. That's right, and okay. they couldn't, and they had no ruling to judge the case or uphold the case because they were saying that this was, uh, in essence, a state's rights or a local issue that the Supreme Court could not rule on, and so that diminished greatly. Uh, the power of the 14th Amendment uh, and equal protection under the law. There were other uh, lawsuits like 
the, sl- the slaughterhouse cases. Uh, if we look into the slaughterhouse cases, this was a series of uh, Supreme Court cases in which um, in the South, uh, a conglomerate of slaughterhouses where they were, you know, um, just like, you know, the chicken houses, Purdue and such uh, in America now, uh, in the South, in Louisiana, this coalition of slaughterhouses uh, sought protection in making sure that they did not have to uh, make their work environment a safe or clean environment. And so they took it to the Supreme Court and argued against the 14th Amendment that, you know, uh, this was a local issue, a private business issue, and equal protection did not apply in this particular case. So all of these types of cases, you know, started to develop to whittle away equal protection under the law uh, under the under the uh, 13th uh, Amendment, the 14th Amendment. And, of so, course, the 15th Amendment, yeah, go ahead. I'm going to say that to to just put the two together is that what you're saying is that um, these bills so far are really micro microaggression compared to the things that happened during Reconstruction One, which people actually lost their lives. Right now, what we can learn from that though is that um, we really need to be prepared uh, to have people in place, attorneys. Um, that can argue uh, on the basis of of the law, of the Fourteenth Amendment, of the Fifteenth Amendment, and those those. I mean, we need people on the scale, and we, and we do have these people. We're not in a situation now where we only have one Thurgood Marshall. We have uh, just recently graduated a hundred uh, young black men from Harvard Law School. We, we are at a precipice now in our society where we have reached a, um, a, a point where we, where we have uh, a, a number of people in position that are qualified, more than qualified, to defend, based on the Constitution, these laws, this microaggression uh, that goes against uh, what, what was set forth in the 14th and 15th Amendment. Okay. Before we let's go on because instead of getting to and more of this one case, because we can do this forever. Um, right. well, I did want to add to that when men that uh, I forgot which amendment, but that gave black men, not black people, the right to vote. Women still couldn't vote. The women so still power, could not vote, and that that's yeah, something that Frederick Douglass caught a lot of fire from because he was he was uh, uh, working with the suffrage movement in hopes that uh, black men and women would get the right to vote. Uh, but the window of opportunity was just too small, and and so women uh, had to wait their opportunity. And unfortunately, uh, as we know, the history uh, didn't get that opportunity until the, until the twentieth century. Okay, so the Georgia suppression laws required the photo ID in order to vote absentee by mail after more than one point three million Georgia voters used that option during the COVID nineteen pandemic. The thing that gets me most upset about that is that it seems not to respect that that's a lot of people who have to make a behavior change. What do you think? Well, certainly, and and, and not only that, um, the numbers that these uh, these laws will affect are much greater than the balance uh uh, of uh, of the of the closeness of the votes. I mean, if you used to look across the country in the last uh, decade or so, a couple of decades, the uh, elections have been extremely close. Uh, in Virginia Beach, by one vote um, for one of the uh, congressional districts in Virginia, one vote. Uh, and there were many other situations where, even in this last national election. Uh, some counties, uh, cities uh, were decided by less than, you know, a thousand votes. So when you start uh, scrubbing uh, thousands of people from the from the rolls or making it uh, hard for them to access the polls, uh, then you are going to uh, to have uh, uh, an election go in a, in a direction you didn't want it to go. And this is what happened uh, during Reconstruction as well. Uh, the, the Ku Klux Klan 
would station themselves at polling booths. And so people would really have to uh, wait. Uh, in this case, they would have to, have to, have to wait in, in, say, in the woods uh, until the poll, uh, the polling place was, was at its lowest point and there were not many people around and then sneak in and cast their vote and then run back to the woods. That, that kind of intimidation was going on uh, during, during Reconstruction after, after the 15th Amendment. Okay, so and Georgia also cuts down the time people have to request an absentee ballot and limits where ballot drop boxes can be placed and when they can be accessed. And so they limit ballot drop boxes to one per 100,000 registered voters. And that sounds cute or not cute, but it means that in Fulton County, where most of Atlanta is, we'll likely see an 80% reduction in drop boxes. So they can go from 40 during the 2020 election to only eight. What's your thoughts on that? Well, uh, it's just amazing to me uh, that a simple thing that would counter all the all the difficulty that Americans have in voting uh, to give them less of a, you know, even if you want to say, okay, it's personal responsibility that uh, of all the holidays that, that America has established, that voting, uh, voting day is not a national holiday where people do not have to work. Uh, they have the li- liberty of using the entire day to cast their vote. That in itself would create a balance, a shift uh, in, the, in the access of people to cast their vote and would, would uh, increase the number of, numbers of people voting and thus perhaps send the shift of, uh, of the balance in a direction that some of us don't want it to go. Yeah, and it's, it's, so it's, just, it's definitely a, a, a these little cute little things you call microaggressions of keeping people away or making it more difficult or in modern versions of being able to or having to stay in the woods and come out when they can, which sounds ridiculous. Well, but, the thing, you know, the thing, the thing about, these things like modern versions of the same thing. The reason that, that microaggression works so well is that you, when you have a very apathetic uh, voting population, it doesn't take much to keep them uh, to find a reason why they, they couldn't, you know, uh, a hurdle. So it doesn't really take a lot uh, to uh, create a small hurdle that will keep uh, 100 people away from, from the voting booth and cause uh, election to go in a, in, in a direction that you wanted to go. And, and now that, yeah, well, that's to say that, you know, we really do need to, to have people um, engage in the political process, but that's another aspect of uh, Reconstruction and the rebellion. Uh, when we're talking about Juneteenth, Juneteenth was a period in, in coinciding with Reconstruction where when we celebrated Juneteenth, uh, African Americans were coming together to discuss the political process, to organize, and to plan what, how are we going to how are we going to make best use of our votes in this upcoming election? And so, all of that was an effort to silence uh, the pride that we had in liberty, the pride that we had in the ability to to cast our votes. And so, that has long-term consequences in the history of America and how we have such a low voter participation in the modern era. Another one that really gets to me um, is this idea that they could replace or remove local county officials who they feel is underperforming. So the state will go into a county and take over a county. Yet these are Republicans who always talk about states' rights and local rights. To me, that seems like a great contradiction. Is it? Not really. There were similar things that happened. I mean, if there's anything uh, in, in the mind of uh, of uh, those people who know American history, uh, right after uh, the uh, the uh, passing of uh, Reconstruction. Uh, where many, many, uh, this was the first time uh, that Confederates would have returned to the Congress out of fresh off the battlefield 
and returned to Congress, there was a there was a, a U.S. representative, a Republican, who would not seat any of those Confederate uh, people that were elected. He would he would not call their names on the rolls, and so because of that, this becomes uh, something that's in the psyche of the political process that that lives a long time. People people who are apathetic about the voting process, who don't study history, they may not understand why certain things are happening. They're happening because these things have happened before. Okay, so you're saying that who have read so history. Yeah. People who have read don't find it being a contradiction, you're saying. No, it's not not at all. Not in so not people, in voting, uh not in social justice, everything uh has as a matter of fact, Mark Twain said, History may not repeat itself, but it often rhymes. It okay. sounds very familiar to what happened before. Yeah. And that's the way you see it. I understand. That's good. It's a different perspective of mine, but I understand it. Okay, the law also well, reduces. Well, I, I'd be I'd be interested to know, uh, you know, what other way there is to see it because we have oh, been trying said, to overcome I this just, process. Because I just because I just you know with the, the way that we've been doing it. Oh, I, oh, I, I, I think the successes I, well, the that we have had, the successes that we've had in America have been when we've had people like Thurgood Marshall recent history, the case mm-hmm. of uh, uh, trying uh, COVID, uh, the killer of, of Brown. These were talented, extremely talented lawyers who, who you can't just argue anything because they know the law, they know the Constitution, and you can't come to the court with a flimsy excuse. This is actually what saved us in you know, the actual election because when you take something to the, to the court, and you bump it up against, and you have to face the Constitution, you can't, unless you're just going to have an outright, you know, uh, Supreme Court judge that's going to defy things like Judge Tawney, or you're going to defy the law like, uh, like Crookshaw, then the law has to stand. Okay, I got you. But let's move on. Let's just say that for me it's a tra- right. contradiction that you're telling me in my face that you believe in states' rights versus the federal, but then the next moment you're doing something where you're reaching beyond the state level and going to a lower level. But the That's law right. also That's right. Yeah, but the, okay, but the law also reduces the time frame which runoff elections are held, including the amount of early voting runoffs. Which kind of effect what what kind of effect would that have? And we only got seven more minutes, but let's try to move it a little bit more faster. Well it all has it all has a devil devastating effect on uh, the ability uh, uh, to to have equal access to the voting voting box uh, and uh, and that's they don't have to move the needle very far uh, so even more early even even yes each one is a microaggression into itself that can right, cause the loss of x number of votes Right, that's what you had mentioned earlier. So it's just one more, including the census, including the yeah. census. When you when you try to when you try to um, to impact uh, a fair uh, count of every citizen that or every person, make that correction, because that's what they were arguing against. When you when, because the law says every citizen, every person living in the United States of America, that causes the loss or gain of votes and seats in Congress and the Electoral College. Okay. So, of course, everybody knows that uh, by now that it bars outside groups from handing out water or food to people in line. But on the pluses, it seems that uh, it does expand weekend voting so people will have more time on the weekend. It codifies Sunday voting, which uh, traditionally a lot of black have the soul to the polls, so after they go to church, they go, or after the church, they go to the polls. And uh, it protects the voters' ability to cast an absolute ballot without having to give a reason. So there seem to be some pluses, but they're so minute. I don't know even why we discuss them, but 
And I think the big thing, too, that, that was brought to attention, brought to my attention by one of our readers is that the laws also affect people with disabilities. Yes. So another thing, too, that uh, I found what Brian Kemp said uh, was that somehow in uh, Delaware, uh, it has uh, more restrictions than Georgia in some aspects, which I thought was kind of weird that he'll compare himself with another state when we're talking about not what they do, but where they're going. And Georgia's going backwards, <laughs> where at the same time Kentucky is going forward. So we had to give Kentucky a hand for moving forward. And I think he missed that point. What do you think about Brian Kemp making this point about, well, in Delaware, they can't do something that they can now do in Georgia? Well, it's, it's just about the fact that if you look at um, who is active in the political process in those states to cause a shift either backward or forward, that's where the answers lie. You know, if we are actively engaged in the political process, if we have lawyers that arrive uh, at, at the uh, Supreme Court of, you know, the, of a particular state to challenge uh, laws like this, then you have, you, you have different results. They do, they do not pass. They cannot, they cannot succeed. Uh, but if you do not have that, when you do get caught uh, with your heels uh, on your heels, then those people who are actively trying to regain their position, as in Reconstruction after the Civil War, then they, that's what they're going to do. And it's been proven not only you know in the 19th, in the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century, time and time again that this pendulum of power swings back and forth. Yeah. So another thing I want to talk about this, this briefly is that in the Gambia, I thought it was interesting to uh, read about their struggle to decide who gets to vote. And one of the things that they decide to do or may decide to do is let the chief or the Kahlo, uh decide if a person is can legally vote. Because if a person can't read or write or they don't have an ID card, you can go to the chief and say, yes, I belong here. Yes, I can vote. I thought that was a cool thing. And two, like you said, you have to know the history of it. One Gambian guy told me, no, he doesn't like it because that's what the former chief used to do to pad the polls. <laughs> and, I, and so when you tell me about having to know the history of these things, and that's when you decide whether or not it's a contradiction or not, I couldn't agree with you more because I knew I didn't know the history of that part at all. Right. But knowing well, that, in but Gambia, knowing that, what you have is a situation where you, you really don't have, Anytime you have one person deciding, uh, you know, one one person, and I'm, you know, is deciding whether a whole thousands and of people can vote or not, uh, then that's not a democratic process at all. Oh, okay, and, that's another good uh, point. Yeah, and, and and so it it really goes to the fact of uh, I would be interested in, or Frederick Douglass would be interested in. What does the Constitution of that country say? What, what does the Constitution say? Because besides that, besides what the Constitution of a particular country says, then the only thing you have is dictatorship. That's, 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 that's America, that's Ghana, that's, uh, that's uh, Nairobi, uh, that's wherever, Zaire, all of these countries, same thing. What is what does the Constitution say? I, I'm actually friends with some have some friends over in Nigeria, and I'm on the phone with this young man, and he at the same time that we are protesting Black Lives Matter, they are protesting SARS. Now SARS, same thing. They they're, they feel like there's po po police brutality in Nigeria, and I'm talking to this young man. And he has never read the Constitution, gotcha. never but, seen the Constitution, and does not believe in the Constitution. So if that is the case, he only has one recourse, and that is to do what John Brown did or do what, you know, is to, is to, is to rebel uh, yeah. in violence because he has no legal recourse to end SARS or end police brutality in, in Nigeria. Gotcha. So before we go, uh, we have 60 seconds. You know, uh, Marjorie Green wants, wanted to start at this uh, this white-oriented caucus, but I guess she held back. But in our 10 seconds, we don't have much left to go. 
but we ask people to just go look. She's not doing it, but she raised more money than Liz Cheney, which I found interesting. So thanks again for your time, and hopefully people will listen more, look up more, and I thank for taking the time to share your knowledge with me and our listeners. At portofholland.net, you can read more about what uh, Nathan writes, and you also look on our Facebook page, you will see things that we often post of his writings. And thanks again, Nathan. Thank you. Thank you so much, Wayne. Okay. Port of Harlem Talk Radio. Uh, please like us on Facebook. Thank you so much, and we'll see you in two more weeks. Thank you.